The Grateful Dead were very much alive for the 1960s counterculture movement. In fact, many believe they helped lead the charge. But as peace and love kept on trucking across the country, so did the psychedelic drugs. Some say that long, strange trip was started by the dead. Others suggest the story may be more bizarre than you think. Enjoy this two-part special on the conspiracies of the Grateful Dead from the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. You can find more of history's most controversial events by following Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify. Your regularly scheduled programming will be back next week, but in the meantime, enjoy. On October 14, 2021, Sotheby's held an auction called From the Vault, Property from the Grateful Dead and Friends. The first lot was a reproduction poster from the Merry Prankster's original acid test. Since it wasn't an original, it was only expected to fetch around $1,500. It sold for over $10,000. Sold to the gentleman in the front row. And as the auction progressed, nearly every item sold for at least double its estimate. A banner that was used as a backdrop for the band's 20th anniversary celebration sold for $94,500. Jerry Garcia's custom effects cabinet, the one he was using at the time of his death, sold for $226,800. The 77th lot was one of the more peculiar items. It was an industrial-looking metal case. Inside were some tubes, knobs, and something that looked like a gas mask. The item in question was an army aspirator kit that had been repurposed to dispense nitrous oxide. It was estimated to sell for $3,000. Instead, a buyer paid more than $25,000. The Grateful Dead were known for their copious intake of LSD, but nitrous oxide was the drug that did more than anything to alter the vibe of their live shows. Even though the gas provided deadheads with a euphoric high, the ones selling it weren't deadheads themselves. And as the nitrous racket expanded, these friends of the devil used intimidation and violence to change the peaceful scene into a broke-down palace. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. Welcome back to The Grateful Dead, a two-part podcast special presented by Conspiracy Theories. The 60s are remembered as a time of peace and love, and nobody exemplifies that better than The Grateful Dead, the psychedelic band at the forefront of the counterculture revolution. But the era had a dark underbelly, one where the drugs weren't so good, the vibes weren't so peaceful and conspiracy theories abounded. In this second and final episode of our special, we're looking into the so-called Nitrous Mafia, a loosely affiliated group of nitrous oxide dealers who began peddling their wares at Grateful Dead shows in the mid-1990s. They've been a fixture at jam band concerts and music festivals ever since. This episode is a departure from our normal format since there aren't any conspiracy theories surrounding the nitrous dealers. Everything in this episode did actually take place. 
And although it may lack conspiracies, there's plenty of drugs, music, and danger. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Drugs and music have always gone hand in hand. In the mid-1800s, composer Frédéric Chopin was a regular opium user. His German contemporary, Robert Schumann, reportedly used mercury, quinine, and arsenic, which may have unleashed his own creative juices. Half a century later, early blues musicians penned numerous tributes to alcohol and reefer. And as we learned last week, LSD inspired a whole new generation of rock bands in San Francisco. Perhaps the first person to realize the potential of this new brand of acid rock was a local promoter named Bill Graham. In 1966, Graham opened the Fillmore in San Francisco. Within months, it became the mecca of psychedelic rock music. The venue became a proving ground for the biggest names in rock and roll, such as The Who, Jimi Hendrix, and Led Zeppelin. This success would coincide with the end of the real hippie movement, which was extremely short-lived. By the end of 1967, the movement had become co-opted and diluted, and with the success of the Woodstock Festival in 1969, the music industry started to see psychedelic rock as a commodity, one that could make a lot of money. After Woodstock, Bands and their managers realized that they could make far more playing one show at a stadium than playing four nights at a smaller venue like the Fillmore. Soon, Hollywood agencies took over bookings, demanded more money, and insisted that only bands they represented could open for the headliners. This shift was so monumental that by 1971, Bill Graham chose to close the Fillmore rather than cede control of booking and promotions. The closure marked the end of the first era of classic rock. As the 60s gave way to the 70s, the music became harder, louder, and far more theatrical. The hard rock pioneered by bands like The Who and Led Zeppelin was the opposite of what you'd expect from the chilled-out Grateful Dead. Pete Townsend destroying his guitar on stage was anathema to almost everything the dead stood for. Not to mention the drugs these new bands were so fond of, specifically cocaine. Under the influence of coke, the new era of rockers cared more about partying and wrecking hotel rooms than expanding the collective consciousness of their audience. It also allowed the groups to power through relentless hangovers and exhaustion to perform lackluster stadium shows for 45,000 fans who often couldn't see or hear the band. Ironically, the Grateful Dead were one of the few bands of the psychedelic era that survived this transition. In fact, it was during this period that the band reached its musical apex. In 1970 alone, the Dead released their twin studio masterpieces, American Beauty, and Working Man's Dead, both of which would go on to be listed among Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. The Dead survived not by turbocharging their music, but by devoting nearly all of their efforts to touring and performing live. Hard rock represented the future, but the Dead harkened back to something else, something more mellow and communal. 
Their live shows were like the early acid tests. Everyone was on the same wavelength. Everyone knew every song, even the live versions that stretched into the 20-minute mark. And while the dead did cocaine just like everyone else, their music never took on a violent or sinister edge as a result. Even a song like Casey Jones, which is specifically about cocaine, was more of a warning than an endorsement. However, the dead had also begun experimenting with a different drug, one that was far more euphoric and mellow than pills or coke. This new drug was a gas called nitrous oxide. In many ways, nitrous oxide was a successor to LSD. And like LSD, it became popular in the Bay Area in the early 1970s. It still produced a euphoric high, but one that wasn't nearly as strong, didn't hold the potential for a bad trip, and most importantly, didn't last an entire day. Many of the drug's early adherents also believed that there were no side effects, that you could huff as much nitrous as you wanted and remain sharp, focused, and productive. In fact, the first chemists who tested the drug extolled those very same virtues. Nitrous oxide was originally synthesized in 1772, but it wasn't until 20 years later that a group of British chemists had the idea to use it as an anesthetic. Of course, they had to test it on someone first, and that lucky guinea pig was Humphrey Davy, the junior chemist of the bunch. Davy described feeling a pleasurable thrilling in the chest and extremities. He said, quote, My senses were more alive to every surrounding impression. I threw myself into several theatrical attitudes. My mind was elevated to a most sublime height. Davy began singing the drug's praises to anyone who would listen, including the poet laureate Robert Southey. Southey was no less effusive in his praise. In a letter to his brother, he wrote that the nitrous made me laugh and tingle in every toe and fingertip, It makes one strong and so happy, so gloriously happy, and without any after debility, but instead of it, increased strength of mind and body. Oh, excellent airbag, I am sure the air in heaven must be this wonder-working gas of delight. Southey wasn't the only one to feel that way. Nitrous quickly caught on, not as an anesthetic as originally intended, but as a recreational drug. And 200 years later, a new generation of artists were still singing its praises. Next, Casey Jones leaves Terrapin Station and makes a stop on Shakedown Street. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved 
actress who would do anything for her child, a jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge, plus a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1799, a group of chemists discovered the pleasurable properties of nitrous oxide. The drug soon became a fixture at literary parties around London, or laughing gas parties, as they came to be known. Chemist Humphrey Davy even published a 580-page book extolling the medical, spiritual, and psychological properties of the gas. In this sense, the chemists who popularized the drug got completely sidetracked from its original intended use. It wasn't until the mid-1800s, half a century later, that dentists began using it as an anesthetic. Beyond dentistry, nitrous oxide also has myriad commercial uses. Mainly, it's the propellant that makes whipped cream whipped. It's used to boost the performance of race car engines and rockets, and more commonly in bottles of shaving cream. In fact, nitrous oxide is so common that it can be purchased in bulk on Amazon. But like many household products, such as paint, glue, or butane gas, nitrous can be abused. The way dentists administer the gas is far different from how it's used recreationally, both in Victorian-era London and today. Notably, medical professionals combine nitrous oxide with oxygen, for instance, at a ratio of 40% nitrous to 60% oxygen. Those using nitrous strictly for pleasure often suck it from a mask or tube that's fed directly from a nitrous tank, or they fill a balloon with the gas and suck it out. Either way, it's a hit of pure nitrous and zero oxygen. And while many nitrous users believe that the gas is harmless, if administered without oxygen, it can cause nausea and severe headaches. This is why the high from pure nitrous is so much more powerful than the mild effects at a doctor's office, because the nitrous is actually replacing oxygen that should be going to the user's brain. If someone were to suck nitrous directly from a tank, as recreational users often do, it can result in serious injury. The nitrous in a tank is under extremely high pressure, and if swallowed directly, the pressure can cause the throat muscles to spasm and convulse. But judging by the complex apparatus that the Grateful Dead used to dispense nitrous, it's unlikely that they ran any risk of injury or overdose. Even though they were known to use the drug during shows, it never seemed to negatively impact their playing. Unlike other bands who were succumbing to the excesses of drugs like cocaine and heroin. Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin continued to pack stadiums. But by the mid-1970s, some band members were often so far gone that they had trouble staying awake, let alone playing their instruments correctly during concerts. But the dead soldiered on. They'd outlasted the end of psychedelia, and now they made it through the classic rock era. 
In fact, by the mid-1970s, the band may have amassed the most loyal following of any group on the scene. When the Grateful Dead toured, which they did nearly without stopping, thousands of loyal deadheads would travel with the band from show to show. To the fans, it felt like a family, an entire community of like-minded people gathering to hear their favorite music. In fact, each show was almost its own small society, one where you could get almost everything you needed or wanted, usually without money. Instead, the economy of dead shows relied on trade or bartering. If someone needed food or water, they could trade a joint. If they needed tickets to the next show, they could trade a few hits of acid. Or if you wanted a homemade Grateful Dead bootleg, that could be yours too. Usually the bartering took place in a designated area lined with tents and VW buses. The area wasn't given an official name until 1978, after which it came to be known as Shakedown Street, after the eponymous song and album. Since it was a Grateful Dead show, after all, virtually every drug could be had, and by the late 1970s, that included nitrous oxide. Almost immediately, nitrous became one of the few polarizing forces at the Dead's shows. Though it was considered by many to be a hippie drug, there were others who felt that it didn't belong on the scene. For one thing, the balloons from which it was dispensed made a huge mess. But more importantly, it just wasn't the kind of high that lent itself to the environment. Psychedelics like marijuana, LSD, and psilocybin were considered perfectly fine. One dose could also last all day. But nitrous wore off after a few minutes, by which point the user wanted more. Sometimes people craved the drug so badly after the high wore off that fights broke out for a few more hits. In that sense, it was seen by many fans as a dirty, addictive drug, it upset the harmony of the deadhead utopia. Though the nitrous use persisted, many mild-mannered deadheads were openly disdainful of it. This contempt and condescension was enough to prevent the drug from proliferating as much as it could have. For the time being, the concert atmosphere remained the same. Unfortunately, drug use within the band was becoming a much bigger problem. The Dead continued packing stadiums and outdoor festivals well into the 1980s. Unfortunately, the Dead, including Jerry Garcia, were not immune from the drugs that had plagued so many rock and rollers. By the 1980s, Garcia was a regular cocaine and heroin user, ironically, to keep up with the demands of touring. Although his bandmates attempted an intervention, Garcia's behavior continued. Garcia continued touring with the band for another decade before succumbing to the effects of heart problems and drug abuse in 1995. He was only 53 years old. After his death, the concert landscape changed significantly. By this point, corporate sponsors were underwriting most music festivals, and the atmosphere that had been a hallmark of Grateful Dead concerts was gone forever. Even though the mid to late 90s spawned more outdoor music festivals than ever before, long gone was the camaraderie and bartering of Shakedown Street. Instead, the line of tents and station wagons was replaced by corporate vendors 
selling overpriced bottled water and official concert merchandise. Drugs, of course, were still ubiquitous, but no longer could you trade a hand-rolled joint for a glass of LSD-infused orange juice. Instead, enterprising dealers took advantage of the sea of potential customers at each festival, selling pills like Ecstasy and Vicodin. And the nitrous oxide market that had emerged at dead shows in the late 1970s had taken on a life of its own. Although the drug was just as polarizing as it had always been, the hiss of nitrous tanks became almost its own instrument. And soon, a loosely affiliated group of dealers would take control of the nitrous market and turn the once peaceful music festivals into scenes of chaos, violence, and intimidation. Up next, Hippie Crack takes over. Now back to the story. After the death of Jerry Garcia in 1995 and the corporate takeover of outdoor music festivals, concerts in general bore little resemblance to the shows the Grateful Dead had become famous for. By the 2000s, the engine that drove the tour bus was money. And this didn't just go for the bands and the promoters. Drug dealers weren't just hoping to score a free ticket to the next gig. They were looking to get rich any way they could. It's not clear when or how the nitrous oxide dealers got organized, but it is clear where, in Boston and Philadelphia. Many music festivals took place during the summer along the East Coast. The way the nitrous ring began to operate was almost identical to any other drug ring, with a kingpin at the top, followed by mid- and lower-level dealers. In a Village Voice article from 2010, a member of the Boston Nitrous Mafia, who we'll call Greg, disclosed the hierarchy and inner workings of the organization. According to Greg, there were around 16 members in the Boston operation, The capo was a man who we'll call Anton from Rhode Island. Using false paperwork, Anton's crew would acquire nitrous from a kitchen supply store. They'd often fill up to 40 tanks for about $75 a piece. Although nitrous is legal, it's illegal in many places to sell the gas for recreational inhalation. Unless they're an ice cream vendor, No one is bringing an entire nitrous tank anywhere near a music festival without arousing suspicion. Therefore, the dealers have to get creative. Greg claims that the crews hide the tanks in hollowed-out compartments of cars, U-Haul trailers, and even in baby carriages. The most resourceful dealers are said to bury the nitrous tanks in the fields weeks beforehand and dig them up during the festivals. Greg, an actual deadhead, claims he was recruited because his appearance would allow him to blend in. Unlike most dealers, who wore athletic shorts, Jordans, and had short hair, Greg styled his hair in dreadlocks and wore tie-dye. At the concert, the dealers would split into two groups, and they'd compete to see who could sell more balloons. At the end of the night, they'd split the profits 30-70 with their boss. The actual dispensing of the nitrous is about as straightforward as it gets. According to Greg, it's usually six guys to a tank. One guy strapping, one guy filling, one guy taking money, then usually three lookouts spread out in a triangle about 20 feet in each direction, watching for security. 
Each tank was able to fill about 350 balloons, and the balloons were going for anywhere from $5 to $10 a pop. This meant the day's profits could exceed $300,000. Greg quickly went from being nearly homeless to earning more than $900 per weekend as a dealer. And since the profits are so astronomical, the Boston and Philly crews have learned to coexist. During festival season, the crews band together. They recruit ex-cons to actually sell the nitrous at shows, which is generally considered the lowest rung on the ladder and the one that carries the most risk. The full-fledged nitrous mafia members handle the money or monitor the stash. The up-and-coming prospective members act as runners or lookouts. Often, they communicate via cell phone or walkie-talkie, letting each other know when they need to re-up or when security is poking around. But that's where the similarities between the crews end. The Philly nitrous dealers all work for one boss, but are broken up into smaller sub-crews. But the main difference between the two groups is that the Philly dealers are allegedly much more violent and ruthless. Greg claims, quote, they operate without a code of honor. They were the first kids I saw bringing guns to the lots. The Philadelphia Don, who reportedly owns his own nitrous supply store and has several workers underneath him, is less apt to show up at festivals himself. Greg notes that even Anton is deferential to him. The nitrous racket is so cutthroat that anyone who tries to sell without the blessing of the mafia is literally taking his life into his own hands. Nitrous mafia members will steal tanks from competitors and sometimes resort to threats and violence. One concert-goer told The Village Voice he was beaten up at a Jones Beach show in 2008 because a dealer mistakenly thought he stole a single balloon. At another festival the following year, an attendee saw nitrous dealers smash another man's head with a nitrous tank. And while security guards and even some police officers do their best to monitor the nitrous situation, their efforts are generally futile. For one thing, nitrous is generally not illegal to possess, only to distribute for inhalation purposes. And the penalty for doing so varies by state. Even when people are caught, they might only receive a slap on the wrist, often a small fine or probation. Not to mention that the nitrous dealers are not above intimidating members of law enforcement. At the gathering of the Vibes Festival, one police officer claims he was offered $10,000 by a dealer to look the other way. In other cases, officers and security guards themselves have been threatened and even attacked. And while the festivals usually employ their own private security, these men and women, many of whom are making little more than minimum wage, are hardly going to risk their lives to crack down on nitrous. Naturally, the Nitrous Mafia members have little regard for the private security personnel. Some have been threatened with guns and knives, sometimes even pistol-whipped or otherwise attacked. In the rare cases that security teams do confiscate a nitrous tank, another dealer, usually from the same crew, will simply pop up somewhere else, because they're far better organized than any security detail they might encounter. Marshall Rodriguez, who operates his own private security company, 
claims that members of the Philly Mafia will dress in seemingly innocuous, official-looking uniforms, so they blend in with other merchants and vendors. Sadly, these tactics are extremely effective. By the 2010s, most security guards and even local police had simply resigned themselves to the presence of nitrous dealers. But one group refused to capitulate. In 2010, a group of deadheads known as the Wrecking Crew took it upon themselves to rid the festivals of nitrous any way they could. However, the Wrecking Crew is a lot smaller and far less organized than the Nitrous Mafia. Still, the vigilantes managed to confiscate at least one tank. They've even posted footage on YouTube of themselves destroying the hall and mocking the dealers. But stemming the flow of nitrous has grown even more difficult for another unexpected reason, the decriminalization of marijuana. For decades, concerts were a place where people went to find and purchase marijuana. Now, many attendees bring it along with them or arrive at the concert already high. Meanwhile, nitrous, which most people don't use on a regular basis, has become a sort of special treat for festival goers something they can use a few times throughout the concert and forget about until the next show. So while the cannabis market has died down at festivals, the nitrous market is still going strong. All of these factors made it seem highly unlikely that anything could put a dent in the proliferation of nitrous oxide. That is, until the coronavirus pandemic. When the entire world shut down in 2020, so too did hundreds of music festivals, meaning the Nitrous Mafia had nowhere to sell their gas. But at the time of this recording, two very long and strange years later, bands are beginning to tour again. Hundreds of festivals are scheduled for this summer when organizers are hopeful that it might be safer to congregate again. And after being stuck indoors for so long, it seems likely that people will want to cut loose and party. Knowing the nitrous dealers, they'll have more than enough gas to accommodate them. And while the Grateful Dead, the band that started it all, will never come back in their original form, since 2015, they've been doing the next best thing. A few of the remaining members organized a group called Dead and Company, enlisting other prominent musicians to join them on tour playing Grateful Dead songs. Like every other band, many of their live shows since 2020 were derailed by COVID-19. But if and when they decide to tour again, it's possible they'll be able to recapture some of the magic of the original Dead concerts. Not just the music, but the atmosphere. Who knows? Maybe they'll even take a stand against the Nitrous Mafia. But if they do, they'll face an uphill battle. After all, to quote the lyrics from Shakedown Street, the sunny side of the street is dark. Thanks for tuning in to our Grateful Dead special. We'll be back next week with another regular episode of Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. 
And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Begley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this Parcast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Spotify.